They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. her archaic roots. So the religion of Artemis evolved from an early tribal and perhaps even nomadic period in the Mediterranean basin. Her worship predates all other Olympians, although when we talk about Demeter and even Aphrodite, for example, these are goddesses and Hecate. These are goddesses that have such ancient roots that we can also claim that these goddesses were pre-Greek pantheon. Actually, the only gods that don't have a pre-Greek heritage are the men. When the northerners, which were tribes of men, came down into the Mediterranean and took over the area of the Mediterranean, one of the things that they did is they assimilated the goddesses who ruled supreme in this area by marrying them off or giving them a sort of a male protector. Welcome to the One on One Podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. Welcome to another episode of the One on One Podcast. I'm your host as always. You know where to find me. All the links will be in the social in the social. All the social media links will be in the description below on the video or on the show notes. And today joining me as a co-host is Gabe, and then we have Carla, Dr. Carla Ionescu. And Gabe, can you plug your stuff real quick? Because I want to let, I would let the ladies go first today, because we're going to be talking about divine feminine, but I want Carla to take it away after she's done introducing herself. So Gabe, can you plug your stuff real quick? Absolutely. Slick Dissident on YouTube. I'm also with the Weaving Spiders Welcome, or sometimes we go by Weaving Spiders Web. Uh, on YouTube, uh, also on Rockfin, and I'm with Chance Garten on Rockfin, also on YouTube at uh, Interverse. That's my jam. Awesome. And today we're going to be talking about Artemis, anything Greek, Roman, Greco-Roman, whatever I love, right? Because I'm really deep into Pythagoras. I love Pythagoras. I love Plato. I love all those guys. And today we have 
uh, Dr. Inescu with us, who's going to be talking about Artemis. Can you plug your social media, your podcast, your YouTube? Because I think you have some really good presentations on there that I think people would really enjoy because I definitely enjoy them and I don't have people on the show who I don't enjoy their work. So, Oh, thank you so much. Um, okay, so my social media is Artemis Expert across the board. Uh, on all the platforms and then the podcast is the goddess project and that's on youtube and also on instagram um that's just for people who want to just listen to the podcast and might not want to watch me do ridiculous things around the world in in museums you know (laughs) yeah because i saw your pictures you've traveled quite a bit all over (laughs) Yeah, you know, I once went to Malta. Sorry, this is a sidetrack, but I once went to Malta and I spent the whole day looking at coins and filming coins. And then my whole Instagram was like eight posts of look how fun these coins are. And I'm sure that all my students and half the people following me were like, oh, my God, what is Carla doing? So, yeah. Did you plug your book? (laughs) Oh, yes. And my book. I even have a copy of it. Yes. She Who Hunts. Yeah, I got the the the. I, I do electronic versions. I love the hunt. I love the hunt, right? Because we're gonna be talking about the hunters of finding a book, going into the bookstore and looking for a book. But it's just I don't have room for it, so I just buy everything and I put it on my tablet. But I did get the electronic version, so I'll put the link to the book in the description as well. And I wanted to ask you, Carlo, what got you into this? Because it's a very niche field, and why did you focus? Can you tell people what you focused on? Because this is very esoteric. And yes. take it away. Actually, yes. Okay, so my PhD is actually on Artemis. Um, and my dissertation was on Artemis of Ephesus. But part of that was some work on the Greek Artemis. So I was connecting all of this. Um, I kind of fell into Artemis, to be honest. I went to school, to university, whatever, after high school. I went to law school for a bit. I did my degree in psych. I did all this. I was like the what they call the eternal student. You know, I have like three degrees and two masters. And I just didn't want to leave school, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I told my dad when I went to law school for a year, I told my dad, um, I don't like it. So I want to do something else. And when he asked me, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I want to do ritual and archaeology. And he said, how are you going to make money? What are you going to do? (laughs) And uh, I didn't really know. So I had a mentor, like a professor that then I took a lot of his courses. He was into religious studies, Christianity, Judaism, all of these things. And he was really a really fantastic teacher. And um, I just started talking a little bit about Artemis of Ephesus and how her statue was really interesting and different and blah, blah, blah. And he really encouraged me to be like, well, if you want to do your PhD, you have to have something that no one else has done before in theory. Right. And um, so I went into my PhD working on all the things Artemis. And I guess the problem that I found with that was one, there wasn't very much information. It was the same information over and over again. So I had to literally use Pausanias as like my prime, well, primary source. He is a primary source, but I had to almost go back and walk through his footsteps to be like, okay, where was this? And where is this? And what is going on here? And two, some of my supervisors were not as encouraging. They thought that the goddess and symbolism and, you know, like ancient goddessy things were dated. You know, they were first wave, second wave feminism and not really sure that that was something that academia wanted to study, right? So for my dissertation, I had to really curtail it a lot to more theory and methodology and blah, blah, blah. And then once I was free of that and I got my PhD and I was teaching and doing my own things, I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to write what I want. 
Yeah. And, uh, so I wrote this book about the Greek Artemis because I think she is quite vicious. People don't really talk about the viciousness of her or the, her wrath and her remorselessness. And, uh, and then my second book will be on the Artemis of Ephesus, which is uh, a whole other system of belief. Yeah, one thing I didn't know was that the the temple to Artemis is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I didn't know about that. And, I'm, and I, I wanted to name this episode The Artemis Conspiracy, but there's already a book by that name because... Oh. And it's about a vi- it's something about something weird about a virus or something like that. So it's yes. like really weird. I, I don't yes. I don't understand, but I found it very interesting because we don't hear about it. And in your videos, you make it seem like this has been done on purpose. Because when it when it comes to especially the the church, I mean, since the very beginning, we know that it's history, his story or her story, whichever you want to name it. We know that there that the mainstream narrative has been skewed, and then obviously that this whole idea of having a, a divine feminine in the Holy Trinity, uh, especially the Gnostics, which I've studied in depth, there is that Sophia, the the wisdom that is there. This the the, the Yaldabaoth, which I have on my shirt right now, is she birthed him, but mm-hmm. that is heretical. That is not 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 true and you know how it is i mean this is all these people that spoke about this were burned at the stake yeah you have this idea where she is twins with apollo almost like she was too powerful on her own and then she was given a twin brother now i didn't understand how there were so many different versions of artemis and one thing that really piqued my interest was that she, she obviously she goes by a bunch of different names Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the temple. I know there's a there's a replica of the temple too, right? Somewhere in Turkey, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, because I was wrong on one thing already, and I want to bring it up. Because now I need to know who was the <laughs> goddess that slayed the serpent. I could have swore I heard that. And so yeah, so I found this all very interesting. But this idea that it's not only Greek; it goes back to even Sumer. Am I correct on that? Where That's this. Correct. The, yes. And we have the Roman equivalent, which is Diane the Huntress, Diana. So right. why do, why is it that there's so many different names? Is it because there was different sects of people all throughout Greece? Or like, how does that work? Because, I mean, she goes by a bunch of different names. So, okay. So there's a couple of things in that I think that you bring up that is interesting. So there's sort of like a pre-Greek Artemis, Mistress of Animals, Minoan, and we can go all the way back to Sumer and other areas. Then there's like the Greeks arrive and they marry off all the goddesses that were there. Okay, so I'll explain that in one second. And then there's the Romans that come in and basically just rename everybody, right? So when the Greeks arrive, what historians believe is uh, this area of the Mediterranean, North Africa, Middle East was ruled mostly by these powerful goddesses that had male consorts. And it was a very harmonious relationship. But when the Greeks, so and I say that in quotation marks because it, it there were tribes of people that came from all over the north and settled down into the Mediterranean uh, or conquered the Mediterranean. It depends if you read Gumbutas or whatever. Um, what, what they did is they arrived in this goddess culture, let's say, fertile land and thought, well, okay, they have all these powerful goddesses, but what about the men? And so that's when they brought Zeus, which, you know, is very similar to Odin, for example, like Norse mythology. So there's this kind of male, powerful sky god. And then they married him to Hera, who originally was an individual 
non-married goddess, and they made her into a wife. Uh, they gave Aphrodite, again, who has very mysterious beginnings, uh, to Hephaestus, and she ends up having an affair with Mars. Uh, Demeter, they left her alone, but they made her the mom of Persephone that has nothing else to consider except Persephone. Uh, and they gave Artemis to um, to Apollo. They said, oh, they're twins, you know. So every female had a male counterpart except for Athena. But what they did to Athena is they made her as masculine as possible, right? I mean, we call her androgynous, but there's nothing feminine about Athena and then they changed her story from like having been birthed by a mother to being created out of Zeus's head so so they they sort of masculinized you know the whole system yeah Yeah. and uh and so in the case of Artemis for example she becomes the twin sister of Apollo right so she's not married because she has that maiden status but she has like a someone a male that she's associated with, you know, she's a half of a whole instead of being a whole on her own kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Cause she was too powerful. You said on her own when the, when the Romans yeah. came, so they yes. married everybody yeah. off. Yeah. And then when the Greeks came, I'm oh, sorry, when the Romans came, like you just said, they just took everything the Greeks had and just renamed them. In fact, they renamed all of them, except of course, as you all know, Apollo, which they really liked his name in Latin, you know, it sounds nice. So then and then that got passed down and then i don't know so if, it depends when we start the study of archaeology like if we start in the 1800s let's say um when you know scholars rich men in europe started looking back at the greeks and the romans they focused a lot on athena because she's the goddess of war right so here's like a war goddess they focused on aphrodite because there's a lot of sex in her mythology not too much on Demeter. Hera was the nagging wife. And then Artemis just kind of got shoved as like the kid's sister who runs around in the woods, you know? And uh, they really didn't actually, and in many of the excavations and many of the other space, they really didn't, they just kind of ignored a lot of her material. Um, even though she was literally like, if you think, of, yeah, I don't know, you guys probably watched 300. Everybody loves that movie, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> The, the Spartans and the Spartans worshipped Artemis and would like offer their blood to her before they went to war. And I'm thinking, how can this be missed? Like they used to like whip themselves into a frenzy for her so that their blood would go on her stat. Like that's fantastic Hollywood, in my opinion. Like how could you forget? How could you leave that out? You know. But and you name your book. Uh, Artemis, the goddess who changed the world. And yeah. I mean, until this, I hadn't heard about her. But what were you going to ask, Gabe? <laughs> That's interesting that the uh, that she's associated with the self-flagellation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of the Opus Dei. Yes. They yeah. practice the same thing. Yes. Yes. And there were even more, like there were even more brutal, uh, like they used to sacrifice humans to her. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and then they did that to a few gods, of course, but they used to sacrifice humans to her. And then when they would sacrifice the bulls and stuff, depends on where we're talking about in Greece, because there were different places. Um, they would like put like the bloody bull parts on her statue. So she was a really bloodthirsty goddess. Yes. A really bloodthirsty goddess. I mean, we, still got, we still got Red Bull today, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's amazing, right. actually. That's right, yeah, yeah. Right. This is why I have brought Gabe. We're gonna, we're gonna decide. We're gonna go a little bit deeper than just Artemis. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna. This is what we're here. This is what we're here for about weaving things in and out. But th- that was one of the things I heard somebody saying that Artemis, she is. <laughs> I heard somebody say this where she's done more bad than good. <laughs> yes. Where she, 
was ruthless how you said very very barbaric the, i think they killed somebody for talking about about their mom uh yes. where she wasn't able to give birth on any land and then you know they went and killed everybody that didn't allow their mother to give birth and i found it fitting to talk about this uh, goddess too because i just had a son so she is also the protector of of babies no of childbirth of childbirth so- she that that becomes really her primary role that everyone focuses on because her story is that when her mother was pregnant with the twins she came out first fully formed and then she helped her mother give birth to her brother so then uh so then she's associated with other pre-greek goddesses like Eletheia and Bridomartis uh who were also birthing goddesses so she takes on that role of birthing but then i think people focus so much on that they forget her ruthlessness. So yeah, your story is exactly right. Niobe bragged that her children were better looking than, <laughs> more beautiful than Leto's children. Mm-hmm. Leto got pissed off. So Artemis and Apollo said, oh yeah, okay. And then they killed Niobe. Or not, I don't remember if they killed Niobe, sorry. But they killed all her children. So nine children, shot them all with arrows mm-hmm. uh, as vengeance. I think they left Niobe to suffer afterwards. Probably. Uh, That's fucked yeah. up, though. <laughs> it's, it's, it's cruel, right? It's, so actually, her arrows, there are different stories. There are people who beg for death mm-hmm. by asking her to come and uh, shoot their arrows into her. So that's like a calm, peaceful death. And then there are people that she kills. Um, it makes me think of St. Sebastian. Oh. Who's, he's he's uh, depicted as the saint who's full of arrows. Really? Oh, my and, gosh. Which is very quietly also revealing... Uh, uh, Sabatizetti, who was almost martyred by arrows. Uh, and it's very interesting that Sabatai and Sebastian sound so, so similar. These are echoes through time. Yeah. You know, they will almost like an avatar mm-hmm. or a mantle. Mm-hmm. Yes. But go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. That's really interesting. So that's yeah, an yeah. Artemis. That would be like an Artemis archetype uh, yeah. even before all of that. So yeah. that's like the original echo. That yeah. we're seeing these guys kind of re-embody. Yeah. And the other thing that's really interesting is that there's not too many. There's not. In fact, now that I'm thinking of it, I can't think of another archer goddess. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's this specific skill that she has. Mm-hmm. Like a, a warrior goddess, yes. A sword, a few times I've seen. A shield, yes. But an archer. And she sometimes, in pre-Greek times, she used to wield the double axe. Oh, very interesting. Really? Yeah. Two axes. That's Hecate. That's two. That's also two torches. That's right. That's, that's right. a very interesting Hecate uh, reflection. Yeah, and Neith, Neith of Egypt, also yes. has a double axe. Mm-hmm. Right? Nice. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and, and it's kind of cool because Heca is axes, Te is two. Yes. So that's it's right. even yeah, it's even like fractal into the name of the of the mm-hmm. spirit of it. Well, because they, they had to, you know, part, part the art of memory and arithmetic is to be able to associate the names, and, you know, with the mythology. This is why I tell people like, oh, it was, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a form of nationalism, all these stories. Because there's, there's a few stories with Artemis where it's like this happened this way. And it's almost like Welsh mythology or like the Nordics where they have all their gods talking with each other and all these different dramas, if you will. But that's a way for them to remember orally their history. Because back then, if, if, if you knew how to write, you weren't going to write just some random thing. You were going to write something that was very important. So the art of memory is being able to make these epics up. Like this is why yes. the, the, 
what's the the Odyssey? It's got different interpretations. There's different versions of it. Just be, but the main story is the same. But it was because it's been right. passed down orally so many times that every single person that repeated it would repeat it their own way. But the story hasn't really changed. So that's the me art of memory. That. Let me move on that one big time. So it's the living word. Mm -hmm. This is the living word, the oral. This is the spoken. This is common law. Artemis came first. She's the baby. She's the, the real living three-dimensional being. Mm -hmm. And her brother, I think, is the written law, is the story in the myth that is a burden to keep alive. It's the placenta. It's the afterbirth. Mm -hmm. We're going into two-dimensional story realm. We're entering into fiction. Yeah. So these are the two truths, the two pillars of truth. Our words are living truth. It's the living word. It's the oral tradition. It's the story that can ebb and flow and weave. But then we got this written burden that we got to keep and drag around like. Uh, like I came after uh, the fact. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's like statutes. These are statutes and codes. And there's so many of them that you have to be a specialist of a specialist for a lifelong commitment to even be recognized as that's knowing what the hell this language is about. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's so many connections that we don't think about, right? Like, and this is one of the reasons why I started the podcast too, because I love talking about the different symbolisms and connections and multi-layers that are overlapping. And we don't have enough, like even when I teach in class, I don't have, and because we do so much dates and times and people, we don't have as much time. And I guess, and to be fair, you have to really be interested to see the, the webs, like you're saying, the webs between uh, different um, connections or the connections between different things, but also how purposeful those are, you know, like those are purposely webbed to create a narrative that let's say the ruling body wants to share and other things are sort of forgotten or buried underneath. And then we have to go dig up and see like, Oh, look at this, this connects to that. So, I mean, that's the one, that's a wonder of an of archeology span and ancient history, but I think we don't talk about it enough. You know, yes. we see it as sort of like a lot of people see mythology as like fairy tales. Oh, those are the story the Greeks told themselves, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, these are serious mm -hmm. stories. The foundations of our civilization yes. sort of thing. You know? um, and, and we need to analyze them and see where our belief system comes from, you know, by digging into this. Absolutely. Right? And, and one thing that I get all the time, because obviously stu studying Pythagoras, and I forgot how Manly P. Hall put it one time, that mythology was... He, he put it beautifully. I'll have to look up the quote later. But what people don't understand is because, you know, I'm in the conspiracy realm of things. I talk about a lot of, of history, conspiracies, uh, mythology, the metaphysical, the physical, whatever. But what people don't understand is that even till this day, we're still using the Pythagorean theorem. OK, mm -hmm. the, uh, that Pythagoras made in the year 400 or 500, whatever that was, we're still using it today. And from history is that sprouts conspiracy so we need to look back at history we need to understand it because a lot of people will tell me why does it matter i'm like what do you mean what does it matter it's literally this is everything that we see today comes from those like look at the the days of the week they're named after after welsh gods you know Thur thursday thursday friday freya day you know all these things saturday saturn day that's all in, in encompassed in our lives today so it's very important to look back and to study it and to understand it and we're only going to understand it to a certain extent because just like alchemy it's all encoded in symbols and it was only 
again, for the initiated to understand. This is what a lot of people mm-hmm. are like, oh, it's just a symbol. Well, for the uninitiated, it's nothing. But for mm-hmm. the initiates, that's a whole nother, it's hieroglyphs. It's, it's a whole nother mm-hmm. world that's spoken to them. But mm-hmm. if you're not part of the club, you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's so important to understand. And this is why I love talking to people who are in the field. I see you're actually in the field at these sites looking at mm-hmm. money and all this stuff, which is crazy. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit jealous. I saw that you went to uh, Petra. I, that, yes. Uh, one of the places I've, I've wow. always wanted to go to is it's people don't understand how big and how massive it is. So I find that fascinating. Yeah, it's I mean, so my favorite thing, I think, and this year, so this year, I'm going after I go to the States, although when I go to the States, I have a few things to look up because the New York Museum and the Chicago Museum has uh, a few exhibits that have some old pieces in there. But then I'm going back to Crete, and then I'm going to head to Turkey for a bit. Because there's some there continues to be some mysterious mm, caves, tunnels, buildings underneath, like in Turkey, they built a lot of stuff that sort of that's where Darren Kuyu is too, right? Is he? I don't know. A uh, Turkey. That's Darren Kuyu, the underground city. Yes. Oh, sorry. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes. 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 So there's so there's numerous places where I still haven't gone. Um, you know, I mean, there's only so much time in a year and so much funding. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think being there is really incredible as well, and seeing and just like sort of because then you just you really see the size of it, the environment of it. You, you know, you try to imagine what it was like to be there. Except, of course, when I went to Ephesus to see um, the seven, the the temple, which was the seven wonders. There's only a a pole left. One pillar, yeah. Yeah. So you just <clears> can't <throat> stand there and you look at it and you try in your mind to imagine what that would look like, right? <laughs> um, yeah, because it was eventually destroyed. But this is yeah. again, this is what blows my mind about people who, and I'm not bashing anyone's religion. Like you, you're gonna believe what you want to believe, but. Everything has been one thing that I that I heard not too long. I forgot where I heard it. It was, you know, you have the Nag Hammadi and you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that is not filtered through the Roman lens. And then you have the canonical version, which is highly filtered through the Roman lens, where it's like there's the same stories, two sides of the two different takes on the same story. But so that's why when people when they tell me like, oh, wow, wow. you know, my religion is the religion. It's like, you don't know that your religion has been replaced 13 times over, however many times since the beginning of time. So you're going to tell right. me that that one time and a thousand years from now, is the religion still going to be the same? Probably not. They're going to probably come out with something new. And I mean, look at it for, since the, the Greek times, how much it's changed. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I wanted to talk to you about. So we mentioned earlier how she how the Spartans would bleed for her because she yeah. is the goddess that doesn't bleed and that she but she makes others bleed and this has to do how she's a virgin because uh gabe and i we've we have this idea where it it is hidden in in history because especially it's got to do with the placenta everything's always attached to the the symbol of the placenta and all this stuff and since i did you listen to my podcast on the womb and the cave I didn't, I didn't check I that can't one. Wait to. You, you would love that. The placenta, the womb, the return to the cosmos, all that stuff overlapping. I'm slacking. I, I, I was listening to the Medusa one, but that's why I wanted to to get you on a talk. But mm-hmm. the this idea of the placenta, right? This this dark space, this this the caves and this, you know, we have the the monks that would meditate in the caves, you know, deep down underground and all this stuff. But this idea that she makes others bleed, 
they bleed for her. And the reason that they did that, correct me if I'm wrong, is because they didn't want to sacrifice one full person. Instead, everybody would shed a little bit of blood and it would make up for that one person. That's right. Yes. One of the things that I brought up to Gabe, because me and him were chatting back and forth, was this idea of withholding uh, the, the idea of suicide through strangulation, where... Mm -hmm. Because by you withholding your blood, because blood we know in magical practices is something very, uh, very sacred with a, a lot of power and all this stuff. So by you withholding that blood, which is the most sacred thing that you could give to the gods or whatever you believe in, you were kind of sort of taking back your dignity or your your respect, you know, put some respect on my name. Is that am I getting that correct? Because she's uh, referred to as the strangled goddess. So so the so the. The strangled goddess comes out of this old story of this area. So you asked me before why she has so many names. And basically in Greece, because they were divided in tribes for so long, they adapted a goddess and then kind of gave her the last name of their area, right? And sometimes she has different characteristics. So in this one area where she is um, uh, the strangled goddess, it comes a bit out of this old idea Sorry, this old story, again, storytelling, live storytelling, right? This old story that there was a bunch of children uh, playing around her temple. And I don't know, they threw some rocks, they made a mess, blah, blah, blah. And the villagers thought that she would be offended. So they killed the children. And um, she was so angry that she withheld the fertility um, of all the women in the village. So nobody could get pregnant. In a way, I suppose she withheld their menstruation. She withheld that lifeblood, right? Um, and then they offered sacrifice to her and all of these things. And after that, what would happen is women would wear the girdles when they were pregnant. Um, and well, there were some before, and then there were some that held the baby and they would offer those to her afterwards as like gratitude for allowing them to be pregnant. Right. So her strangled comes out of this idea it's a weird way to say it, actually, when you say it in English, but it comes out of this idea that she withheld fertility. She withheld the life force from all the women in the village until the, the, the killing of the children was avenged. Right. Uh, so, yes, in a way, she does hold. She does hold life force and she has power over life force, particularly around procreation and, of course, the blood of women. Right now, the Spartans, that was in a different part, obviously, of Greece, and they bleed um, in that in that space. She is she is uh, she's called Artemis Orthea. So in that space, she is more like a huntress warrior type and they bleed in honor of her. So they want their blood to spray on her statue. Not not has nothing to do with that. Her being strangled and fertility. That's a, that's more like a war right or pre-war. Yeah, I, I think right there, that distinction you just made, that line is super important. I think that it's super important uh, because um, I think there are people who are venerating Artemis who are in a very influential uh, places, mm -hmm. very high up. And I think well, something we try to do on the spiders is like bring back these these art these archetypes and the value of them, but it's so hard to uh, separate them from the people who are really well funded who are uh, putting these signs and symbols into ritualistic use in mass. And I have something really kind of scary to say. Okay. 
And I think that is that we just went through a ritual. I think we just went through a ritual of suffocate the Sophie of Hecate. I think the mask ritual was a, like, like you said, Mario, they need everybody to pitch in. Hmm. It needs to be collectivism. It needs to be collective. We all, for this is the new normal, the greater good, all these things, we're all in this together. I think we were all put into a mass ritual with the whole world. And it goes to this energy we're talking about. And that is really scary to think that at the tippy tippy top, these guys are putting on their family crests and signs and symbols and handshakes behind the scenes. And they just forced us to participate in a ritual that, uh, that it was really scary for the kids, you know, it was super scary for the kids. So that I just, I think that that distinction you just made about one was about the suffocation and then the other cultural, they were coming at it from a different angle. That's mm-hmm. super important that we disambiguate so that we can even look at the implications that there are people using these goddesses to put people through rituals that may lend to a more meaning, putting more meaning into context than you ever thought possible to the name M-E-D, Med, USA. Med, USA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is really something to think about, that that has been here all along in our words. It's always been part of the story, but they're fulfilling it like some kind of weird prophecy. So you look back and you're like, it was them all along, you know, but there really is, there is a big spell going on right now to push this, what I consider a med USA scare tactic. And they have kind of petrified a lot of people. That's good language there. Petrified. That's right. Yes. That's right. Uh, Carla, are you aware of where uh, Medusa is in the, uh, in the constellations? Uh, if I look it up, no, I haven't looked it up in a long time. No, where that's kind of what that's where I come at it big time. And I don't know if you are aware, but no. the fact that you and I are talking about this today is super special. Yeah, oh that's good. I'm excited. It's super special. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, Mercury has been expressing a Perseus ritual hmm. all week this week. Interesting. And we are at a very critical moment as we speak right now. And Mercury has walked backwards in retrograde, like Michael Jackson doing a moonwalk backwards, almost like a mating ritual. Mm. You could even think of it, you know, he had to approach, he can't look at her. He's got to approach her backwards or look at his mirror for her reflection, you know. And so Mercury has gone backwards for a few days now, and he is on uh, the star Al Gol, which is the eye of Medusa that is very mythologically uh, powerful because that is the source of alcohol and alchemy, the alchemy of snake alchemy and the wisdom of, you know, using chemicals and separating the beneficial from the poison, which is what we're trying to do with these myths again, take, you know, take away the bad from the good and uh, maybe give them, reappropriate them with positive vibes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's happening right now. So it's really cool we're talking about Medusa because Mercury just did a a little seduction dance and now they're hanging out. And I think he, he's going to go out of retrograde 
and right. leave her behind. So it is very much like Perseus approaching Medusa, taking the trophy, which means stone. Atrophy is a stone. It's a trophy, you know, in her head turns things to stone. Yep. And then I also, I just got to say, I think this suffocation thing is a huge part of it. It's a huge part of it. There's been a lot of uh, celebrities being strangulated, the red scarfing. That That's a huge part of it. And I think that there's an erotic... There's probably some uh, occulted erotic innuendos in play that people don't think about. That strangulation does cause men to turn to stone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And and here's the thing. This plays into the whole because I'm real big on that too. That we are part of these alchemical rituals without knowing, right? As long as you, you know, I use King James all the time, where he was, you know supposedly again allegedly francis bacon was the one that that edited the king james version of the bible king james was a guy who was writing about demonology witches werewolves all this stuff and how the rosicrucians supposedly put cryptic ciphers into the the king james version of the bible and by this is one of the most widely used bibles that there is and by you reading and carrying their intention even if you're doing it unaware i mean when the nazis were uh, were experimenting on the people they were unaware of it. There's there's an aspect of MK Ultra that's the the participant has to be unaware of what's going on. So I do believe that there is something more. And they've always said that the Roman Empire never fell; it just got renamed. You know what I mean? So there's also that take on it where they are using, and we know that the lizard people they use and they talk to other worldly entities. I hundred percent believe in that that they are in touch with something uh, metaphysical, and it's not just I, I I forgot who it was where they were on a podcast and they were like, oh, well, in all your research of history, have you came into anything metaphysical? And they're like, nope, nothing at all. They go, what are you talking about? Like, it's, it's the, the reason we're here is because of, of the metaphysical. You know what I mean? Like, the, the entire system, you know, there's been uh, the, the Code of Hammurabi was, was mystically inclined to them and, and the Ten Commandments, you know what I mean? Like, all these things that are at our foundation, our, our country, and God we trust. What God is that? I don't know, but in God we trust. So the metaphysical has been there since the very beginning of time. I mean, you know, it's it, our, our society's in, 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 in drenched in it, and a lot of people want to just casually walk by it and ignore it, and if that's what you want to do, that's cool, but this is why it's important to understand. Again, back to understanding, they say symbols are the language of the soul. Here they are with all these archetypes, and I think it was Carl Jung that talked about how all these goddesses and gods were were archetypes that were projecting outwards and, you know, associating with the, you know, in the unconscious, you know, this is yeah. the name for this, this is the name for that. And one of the, one of the interesting things that I found about Artemis too, was she's also the light bringer, yes. the, the light bearer. And we yeah. talk about the light bringer being Lucifer. So. Oh, there's a lot of associations. Yes. Oh my goodness. Oh, that, that, that's a long story, but yes. Uh, so she asks actually to be called and then she becomes called the light bringer or phosphorus which is um when she's sitting on zeus's lap and she says to him right uh i want to be well i mean they say a maiden forever i mean the the word for virgin in greek of course is more pious than hymen right um and there is actually a movement now with uh a lot of young scholars that are looking at artemis as sort of an early uh homoerotic character or divinity because she's surrounded by other nymphs and other females she has no interest in men nor does she want them 
to look at her and then they get punished for looking at her. She punishes women too. Um, and so where was I going with that? I can't remember what I was saying now. Um, but phosphorus. Yeah. Sorry, the librarian. So she asked him, so she says, you know, I want a city. I want this many nymphs to be my, around me. I want to never have to deal with anybody. I want to live on my own terms and I want to be called and have, and be a light bringer. And in fact, actually Homer says when he talks about her arrows, he calls them golden shafts of light. Right. So when she's shooting people, she's almost shooting them with golden shafts of light, whether it's deadly or whether it's calm mm-hmm. either way. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said for her, I think. And Zeus says, yes, you know, like everyone else has a duty. Everyone else has a responsibility, but for her, she just does whatever she wants. And I find that fascinating that no one talks about that. You know, everyone has in the Olympic pantheon, everyone has a responsibility, you know? I mean, they call her the goddess of the hunt, but she doesn't have to hunt and she doesn't always hunt. She just does whatever the hell she wants. And she doesn't answer to anybody. Um, so I find, I almost feel like she kind of escaped maybe by being ignored or maybe not being taken seriously. And when the Greeks arrived, her story escaped a bit or, or just yeah. kind of fell through the cracks. Um, I'm not sure. Some people say, well, her story was very powerful, so they couldn't change it too much. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I, a lot of women in the wild, so. I see her a lot nowadays. Yeah? I see her in Brave. Yes. I yeah. see her in uh, Princess Leia in the new yes. Han Solo. I see yeah. her in Princess Leia. Tomb Raider. Hunger Games. Tomb Raider. Thank you. And Hunger Games is a great one. Yeah. You know, I and really love that. And that. What's the one Hunger, with Kira Knightley where she's like blue? I think it's a King Arthur. Um, okay. You can say an avatar too, where she is blue. Avatar, the, the, avatar too. Yeah. The yeah. She does. She does the double shot. She hits him twice. That's two torches. The double. That's the, the two pillars. The in the Hecate. Yeah. Oh my god. I love, I love that the Katniss Everdeen brings that cat aspect. You know. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure you guys know about all the uh, the name is escaping me now. But the women all over the world that were riding horses and shooting with their legs. I can't remember yeah. what that sport is called. Is it archery still? Or is it? I don't know. Shooting with their legs. You know, so with they're on the legs? horse and their legs go up. It- and they shoot with their legs. Have you ever seen that? They shoot the arrow. Oh my god, that's Scythian. Is it? That's totally Scythian. This that's right. is that's this right. is the hot stuff, y'all. This is okay. where this is where the she viper really comes from. You got them all excited now, Carla. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because her legs are like uh, are like a serpent uh-huh. that they can reach over and sting like the Scorpio. Abraxas. Yeah. Yeah. And she's got the animal nature still under control underneath. And she can, and also I've heard that those Scythian uh, uh, archeress, they would put the arrows in their hair and their hair was anointed with poisons. Oh, I didn't know that part. And when somebody gets a little scratch, it paralyzes. It turns to stone. Oh, Completely and totally substantializing all of the mythology of Medusa in a whole cult of goddesses who were total badasses that men have, should be scared of because they were total badasses. Yeah. And they That's could. Amazing. Yes. In the fact, I just love that the uh, the barbs or the uh, the bolts. 
they're not technically arrows. Weirdly enough, they're bolts or barbs mm. in that they're in their hair as a sheath in that it's like uh, just so smart to have it like ready to poison every dart uh, yeah. that, so they can shoot. That's really cool. It's so cool. And they continue to practice that today. Like I've seen it today. Uh, I've seen some like in the area that used to be Mongolia, they're practicing it. Yes. In uh, Eastern Europe, they practice it. Uh, I don't know. I've just seen some images, but so they continue the sport yes. um, even today, you know, which when you watch them do it, it's incredible. You're just like, you're on a moving animal, right? Like on your body and your legs are, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's very acrobatic. Yes. And I love this. And I just want to point one more thing out, very uh, popular to that culture, to this, this kind of maybe uh sacred occulted bloodline. I've heard that the, uh, the Mongolian fit, like the, Royal family tree is like a mythological body of works that in a very obscure book culture, it's like a a holy grail to like, to find the actual printed proof of the bloodlines of the Mongolians is a whole thing of itself. But I also want to point out these people, these Scythian archeress, she viper goddess warriors, right? They were very closely related to people, people who do falconing. Yes. that's right. And they can hunting with birds. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. Really? So these things culturally they will have they will have echoes and expressions uh th- through our art, our attempt at venerating Artemis in our art. Yeah. Yeah. And I think of art of mouth also, the spoken the fact that it's passed verbally, it's the story is the living story, it's passed by word of mouth. I think of Artemis having a nice echo of the art of the mouth. You know, Gabe, now that you say that, I just think about um, the men that spied on her. So their gaze found her. She Mm -hmm. turned around and killed them. Well, she turned one into a deer, right? And then his dog tore him to pieces. And then she killed a couple others. So now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, that's a bit of a Medusian, if you can use that word. The sense that the gaze, that the male gaze that is not welcome or wanted ends up being punished. In the same way that those who entered Medusa's cave, like I say in my podcast, I mean, people never talk about it. The fact that she never turns women to stone because they never go into her cave to try and kill her. Like, so it's more like whoever comes at me, whoever looks at me uh, is then punished without my permission. Right. So there's a whole and now that I think of it, Artemis is the same. Like when people are kind of sneaking up on her in the woods, well, men usually because women don't don't sneak up on her. She kills them or she tortures them or whatever. She she gets rid of them, right, as punishment. So there's, again, that gaze and consequence. There's looking right. and then a type of death or a type of, yeah, destruction. Right. And, you know, I really love the point you brought up. I, I did in the show that Juan shared with me, and I can't wait to get to the rest of your stuff. I'm so excited. But I love the point you made about how um, there are – it's very common in many cultures for uh, there to be this uh, – a fear that if a man sees the birthing process, he will lose his attraction to the woman. Yes. And that is a very powerful archetypal archetypal weight uh, that it goes unspoken. It's yes. like looming over everybody's potential experience in life. Yes. And it's a hazard that needs ritual. It needs uh, uh, superstition to protect the possibility of that from happening. Yeah. And, uh, and I love that you point that out. Yeah, to be fair, I mean, men were never in the room when thing, when 
birth was happening. So perhaps, right. like, perhaps in modernity, we've pushed too far that some things are not meant to be observed by everybody. Yeah. You know, now you can give birth and your whole family's in the room. Where in the old days, you know, you went into the tent with other midwives and other women and whatever happened in the birthing tent, it just remained there and whatever. So sometimes I think like we've really, we've really pushed or forgotten ourselves in a way, you know, or I don't, I don't know, but things have changed in a way that is affecting us negatively, you know, in, in relationships, you know? Um, and so that, that stuff creeped me out for a long time because I didn't even realize it. Right. I mean, I don't want to see it either <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. Right. Like I, you know, but, um, it's so funny. it's funny you bring that up Gabe, because that's one of the things that, because my wife has a, a cesarean sec, uh, a C-section cesarean, right? Yeah. Cesarean. And one of the things that I had always avoided when, cause it's already twice. So the first one. I tried not to look at her while she was cut open on the table. And then the second time around, I actually did look because they were like, oh, look, they're about to pull them. I was like, ah, you know, like, ah, should I look? Because it's like, not that I'm queasy with blood, but it's like, it's kind of, it's too, I don't know, gory. I mean, not that it bothers me, but I, I did look this time and I was, but I had that, that thing in my mind too. It was like, should I look? Even she didn't want me to look. I'm like, well, it's. It's supposed to be natural, but at the same time, it's like, mm, you know what I mean? So there is that dogma. I can firsthand tell you that it is true. I don't know how you felt when you had your kid gay, but uh, I can definitely relate to not wanting to look. But it's like something right. subconsciously that just like told me not to look. You know, and, I mean? right? and, it's, and it's etched in your memory forever. Yeah, that's right. Very much like a statue, a frozen moment in time forever, psychologically. And I think also when we say like, you know, everybody says like something is natural. What I'm realizing is that people are forgetting that in nature, there's also mystery. Right. So it's like we're almost saying, oh, well, you know, this is natural whatever. We're kind of I don't know how to explain it. It's like it's just organic something. But there is mystery still in nature. Like I know science is supposed to explain everything and all that, blah, blah. But there's still mystery in all of these things. And perhaps some things we don't have to witness uh, or even understand if we're witnessing. Yeah, like how are diamonds made or how is gold made? They don't know how it's made. They just speculate on how it's made. And that's definitely true. And, and that's one of the things I wanted to get into uh, with you about because we have this, we see it in movies, right? Where the women, they wake up at night and they go into the woods and they do their pagan ritual the druids you know they're all naked the sabbath we have the witch's ointment we have all these things that come around and artemis she was known for the orgies and the 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 i forgot how you put it in your book where you talk about how the when a when a when a young woman is going into puberty the the wild the, the barbaric okay. aspect of the young lady and I mean, I could see that because I have a sister and when she was growing up, she was a, a firecracker. So this aspect of, again, the wild ones where the wild things are and all this, the mystery yeah. in nature. If a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody around to hear it, doesn't make a noise type of thing. You know what I mean? Can we talk a little bit about that? And also yeah. the rituals of them wearing a mask. Yeah. And because I, I found that interesting where. We always talk about the unveiling, right? And, and the initiate needs to stand behind the veil. But then here, this goddess is encouraging the mask in order to like sometimes like put on a facade, almost like the the yeah. the opposite of a veil. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about the wild. So because for the Greeks, they lived in tribes and villages like most early peoples, they had like the city space and everything outside the city space was scary, right? Uh, but it was also in a way freedom outside of politics, outside of economy, right? Uh, even today, we have people like that movie, Into the Wild, or people who go off grid. So that drive, that human drive to be in the wilderness and to be even nomadic has been in, in, intrinsically in us. Nice. So Artemis is the goddess of the wild. So she is out there. She's very rarely in the city. And she wow. governs or celebrates, her and Dionysus are the two that celebrate these wild parties at night, mostly, of course, because Artemis is associated with the moon, around the full moon, around the new moon. Then witches later were associated with the full moon, etc. Can so, I insert something? Yeah, real quick? yeah go ahead. I see, I see that is the uh, uh, intrinsic to private and public. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. So she, she's protecting the private side. Yes. The yes. wilderness. Yes. And so when women go out in the wilderness, for example, during her dances or her new moon festivals, they put on the masks to allow themselves to be wild without judgment of the other women. So it's almost like a masquerade ball where you don't know who the other person is. And while you're out there in the wild, you can release or let go of your true wild persona, of your shadow self, of your dark self. And Artemis and Dionysus later, because he has his own wild parties, um, are part of the celebration or, or the center of the celebration. Um, and then what happens is Artemis is also the transition goddess. So, so w- young girls, let's say, are, exi- are allowed to be wild until they get their periods and then they're of marriageable age. And then they do a ritual also out in the forest in which they shed their, ch- like their childish clothes or their wildness and then supposedly, you know, enter into a maturity where now they have to be wife or whatever. And Artemis is um, the guardian of this process, of this rites of passage. So they dedicate all their wild clothes or children's clothes. And in fact, if you go to Verona, Greece, for example, it's the best example. They leave their toys in her temples too. Uh, they leave all the things that are childhood things in the temples of Artemis. So it's like they leave that wildness behind and transition into a type of maturity. And boys do that too with Artemis. Uh, boys, they don't do, they don't leave uh, childish things, but they go through like a feat of strength. You know, these kinds of rituals where they perform feats of strength. But again, the celebratory god is Artemis. So she, that's why we call her the goddess of transitions. Because wow. she straddles that, that almost like that childhood to adulthood, wildness to now, yeah. I don't know, maturity. It makes right? me think. It makes me think of where the wild things are. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And also, also the quote of you know something, something, something. But when I became a man, I left the childish things that's behind. Right. That's right. That's in the Bible, right? Yes, I that's right. So. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to because there's a story of again. Correct me if I'm wrong. The where the boys were taken through was it Cretona? Oh yes, the boys that were taken and they were being sold. Yeah, but and this is this is embarrassing because Pythagoras is from this town. Is it Cretona or Cretoa? I forget the name. Anyways, this idea that they were going to be turned into eunuchs, and right. one of the things that the the Artemis of Ephesus, where she's got the multiple breasts. There's uh, we have a friend Mario from Symbolic Studies. 
that's hinted at the fact that these maybe aren't breasts because every time, you know, in Egyptology or in any regular place, he's like, they always take like, oh, look at this big breasted statuette. Oh, it must be fertility. It's like, no, what if some dude that was going to school like big titties and he just made a, a, a statuette with a big boobs like that? that it, but they always go, oh, it's fertility goddess. We have, in the, for those that don't know, just look up Artemis of Ephesus, where she's got the multiple breasts. But Mario, our friend, he said that those might be testicles. Have you ever heard of that? You know, it's so funny that you say this one because I literally, so I have a friend of mine. His name is Paul, and uh, he's a big Artemis worshiper in the way that I am. And we have this debate because he thinks they're bull testicles, and I know uh, that they're beehives. Really? Uh, yeah, they're not breasts in any way. They're not breasts. I think that's a European later imagination because breasts have nipples, you know, and there's milk like and hers. If you look at them, they look like cones, which is what hives look like. I actually saw this really perfect like the so what, pine cone, too, because it could also symbolize the pineal gland. Right. It could. It could. But they say that, so for me, so he always says, oh, yeah, because they did these sacrifices to her and threw the bull parts on her statue, whatever. Uh, but for me, the one that rings true is that they used to have this wood statue, of course, uh, the very first statue of her that was brought by the Amazons was a wood statue. And she didn't have anything on her upper body, just her animals and stuff. And then um, hun- uh, bees started creating honeycombs all around, just building on the wood, you know, because that's what bees and wasps do when they see a. And so th- that's sort of the beginning of this concept of beehives and she's the queen bee and blah, blah, blah. There's all these uh, words for her. Uh, but yeah, they're not breasts, but actually the breasts could come from Kaibali, right? So Kaibali is yes. a multi-breasted goddess. Here she we go. Breasts. Yes. Yes. This, yes. The Kaibali yes. is a doozy. It, yes. She's everywhere. Yes. She's everywhere. She predates, she predates Artemis and people say that actually Artemis may have grown out of that tradition. What's I the name of the goddess? Kaibali. K-Y-B-E-L-E. I've I've seen it spelled every which way. Yeah. Yes. yes. Maybe with That's a C Y too. Sometimes in English they do C Y B E L E. Like Cybele, is I. Yeah. 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 Oh yes, I've seen her before. Yeah, yeah. and that's yes. the thing that we're we're because when it comes to history, I feel like we're all we we're all trying to tell the same story, just with different faces on it. You know, we all have yeah. the we have the puzzle, but it just. The pieces aren't in the same spot where they're supposed to because, again, because of this, I call it the cosmic game of telephone where since the beginning of time, everything has Mm -hmm. been passed down and it's just been morphed and shaped into something else that it's, you know, from its original form. And the oldest, the oldest literature that we have, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, but what was going on even before that? You know what I mean? Well, you know, what was happening in the Americas while the Fertile Crescent was booming? It's like there was nobody at all on the other side of the world, like at all. Like, no, that's I I think that's bullshit. You know, I, I find a lot of what you're saying there is the fact uh, these are these are uh, figures and forms of the heavens. Right. And they have this animalistic totem pole uh, kind of characteristic where you take these characters in this section of the sky and you then you squish them together and you get this uh, snake tailed uh, sexy lady body. And then a serpent head on top. And that's actually, that's literally the features of that quadrant of the heavens. And I can take basically Pisces, Aries, and Taurus and stack them all on top of each other because they all live around Medusa's head. 
Yeah. You stack them together and you get a Medusa shape made out of the glyphs when you combine them. And you know what's crazy, Gabe, too, is uh, Artemis of Ephesus, not the Greek one, and her, on her statue, on some of them, she has the astrological symbols around her neck of the cup. Yes. People are like, yes. people are like that's so weird, you know? Right. How does that? So that's still a mystery. Yeah. Why does she have the astrological symbols around her neck? Because there's yeah. no, you know? Really fascinating. I mean, think. I mean, thinking of symbolism actually, right, and the role yeah. symbols play, right? Yes, and you know something that would interest you is the fact that I, the one I described is in the spring, and that's Medusa. She is at one hundred and eighty degrees, I believe, from the archer. Oh, and the archer is in the fall. So the two characters, this this hunter, grounded, uh, you know, somebody who's. Uh, uh, mastered the animal aspects, you know, the animals do the, her bidding, you know, she sends the dogs out to, yeah. to work for her. Uh, um, that's in the fall, I believe. Um, that has a lot of those ingredients. But then again, that's not true because can the Canis Major and Minor are up in the spring. So that's not fully true. But anyway, um, and Medusa is uh, at the end of that arrow. Uh, so the Sagittarius is pointing, I always point the arrow towards uh, the springtime where the Taurus and the bull is. And so that's kind of where the horns come into play as well. But uh, I just think it's really, that's what I come at it from is like, this yeah. is actually the, the movement of the sky is uh, often reenacting the ritual of the story. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and. Back to this idea that maybe we're a part of some ritual, right? We're, again, the, the lizard people, the, the, the elites. And lizard people, maybe they might be actual lizard people or not. I like to talk about them in a metaphorical sense. I like to call them lizard overlords. We have this idea, right, uh, speaking on the, the Greek aspect of it all. We have the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes, where it's the Greek sun god Helios. And if you look at the comparison between Helios and you look at the Statue of Liberty, you see a resemblance there, okay? And this is, again, we know that Artemis had cults uh, for a very long time. And who's to say that there's not maybe some Neo-Artemisians, I guess? That's how, how you would say there it. There definitely are. There definitely are. Well, the, exactly that there are that they're that they again they identify with a certain archetype at a certain point in time for whatever reason and they continue their bidding for X amount of time, which we can all agree that the the people in power are shady. And I mean they do things without our knowledge and they obscure things and they're not going to just come out and say it with like, hey, this is what we mean. This is why they, again, back to the symbolism, they, they code it in symbols. That's what alchemy was because they couldn't come out and say it because they'd be burned at the stake. So, uh, and I found it because when I was doing a little bit of research for this episode, I, I came across, I was like, oh, I didn't know it was one of the seven wonders. That's crazy. They don't talk about that in school. And then I was like looking at the other seven wonders and the Colossus of Rhodes uh, stood out to me because... I've seen it compared to the Statue of Liberty before, so makes a and lot of sense. And of course, the Statue of Liberty is basically Hecate, right? I mean, she's the torchbearer, right? So she's, you the know. The light bringer. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Because Artemis and Hecate share, they're, they share a lot of the same, like the moon, the night, um, all of those things. They share a lot of the same characteristics. And sometimes, in some places in Greece, they overlap. 
their their worship mm-hmm. overlapped. Same with Celine with the moon and stuff like that. So I think sometimes we focus maybe a lot on like separating them because we live in a society where religions are so separate. Like mine is like this. It's carpal- How do you say it? Carparmentalize things? Because I always yes, fuck yes, that word up. That's right. That's right. Where the ancients, they just basked in the glory of like 20 gods, you know, 50 gods, whatever, you know, they went from temple to temple, from festival to festival. They understood symbolism. They shared ideas. Like it was a much, I would say, more open-minded, open-hearted, mm-hmm. um, you know, spirituality, right? Nice. And and so that allows for they. And I'm fascinated by them because they could walk anywhere and interpret things, and we take forever because we need our little book, you know, to like, what does this mean? What is this? But for them, it was so natural, right? Because they thought in these multiple layers, right? When they entered different places. Um, And I'm a little bit envious of that because for them, things like they would see a snake, let's say, or they would see a a halo or they would see whatever. And they would know automatically they could they could sort of compile that and it it could have multi meanings for them. And they could in a three dimension. You know what I mean? It's fascinating. fascinating. I love that you said open hearted, just as I was thinking to ask you about the color green. Oh, and yeah, to a large degree, I see uh, uh, just a vast amount of green symbolism uh, layered in. I mean, we, obviously with snakes. Yeah. Um, but another thing that uh, my research has brought forward about Artemis that is like really exciting. It's been a real adventure, uh, and it's hard to like convey the synchronicity of it through mm-hmm. the computer to people yes oh gabe uh, and can i add that you and i both do archery is that weird right <laughs> gabe's an archer i'm an archer so it's kind of weird i forgot to bring that up yes. my, yeah and my daughter is a sagittarius my daughter's a sagittarius her, too yes. what's that my daughter's a sagittarius too nice yes. i tell her she's a sage guitarius <laughs> you know yeah so um, so one thing that I found about Artemis that is really exciting is um, I so and I, I heard it in uh, the show that you I listened to that you did. She has another name that is very similar to uh, Tujon or Tuhong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you pronounce that? How do, how do you say it? Because it I've heard I've heard it many ways. Like Tujon, Tujon, Tujon. Okay, now yes. now get ready, get ready. <laughs> okay. This is huge. This is huge. And it just keeps, it has, it's the gift that keeps on giving. So uh, that is the uh, key ingredient to absinthe. And I have discovered that absinthe and the spirit of absinthe, the knowledge of the magic that goes into the ingredients of absinthe is deeply imbued with this Sagittarian uh, energy. Uh, and the art, the the spirit, I believe, of Diana and this this sage guitarius, um, because uh, oh, it's such a long journey to con- convey. But essentially, Tujon is the key ingredient to absinthe, and so is uh, Artemisia. Mm-hmm. Artemisia is. Artemis's name. That's right. 
And sure enough, uh, uh, my journey has taken me through the tarot cards. Mm. And I have discovered that this, this wonderful goddess is encoded uh, in the herbs and these ingredients, Tijon, Artemisia, all of these are uh, key ingredients to absinthe. And the journey of absinthe through history is absolutely fascinating. She had to go underground, mm-hmm. much like Hecate with the two torches. It goes underground. It goes through uh, almost an alchemical process of being uh, subjugated, martyred, or uh, put on the black market. Um, and so the uh, the history and the culture behind absinthe is like, uh, has a powerful correspondence with Artemis. Uh, Crowley's uh, tarot deck, he changed that card to uh, from the temperance card, which used to mean uh, prohibition of alcohol. The temperance movement was all about prohibition of the spirits mm-hmm. of this alchemical wisdom. And so he changed it to art, which is very uh, nifty way of preserve, even bringing Artemis forward more. Yeah. Uh, in that station, that Sagittarian station. And so I'm just really excited to be able to see the significance of absinthe. I think it's the Wicked Witch mm-hmm. in the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. I think that the prohibition of absinthe and the spirit of alchemical wisdom of these serpent cults is being subjugated artistically uh, in the Wizard of Oz. They're looshing her when they pour water on her. That's how, what you do with your absinthe. So it's got a really profound looshing uh, component. Uh, and so, yeah, I just had to just kind of throw that all on the table because I find it so fascinating that uh, these stories, these myths have real life ritual uh, that is uh, should be preserved and uh, maintained and observed. Uh, so, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. And, and we got to understand that it's all it's all linked back to alchemy. And, and since on the top topic of spirits. In Sumerian, the word bar means temple. And it's weird that we go to bars to consume wine and spirits. Mm-hmm. So, again, the, the, the play on words there that a lot of people, and I don't like the term woke or asleep or anything like that, but a lot of people don't realize, again, back to this idea that our lives nowadays are covered in this symbolism. And if you don't understand it, you're not going to have the eyes to see. You're uninitiated. You're not getting, not, not saying initiated as in you have to join some secret society or worship some weird God, but, you know, just understand it and 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 look into it because, again, it, it's there. And this is crazy. It's a 45% to 74% alcohol volume. This thing would, it's like, it's like uh, moonshine, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. Yeah. It's true, and I don't think it's an accident. Like, so this is my reason why I always tell people because they're always like, "Why do you teach myth?" And I'm like, "It's so important. Myth and history is so important." And I don't think it's an accident that it's starting to lose more and more funding, right? Interesting. And that, and the fascinating thing is when I start talking to my students about all of these things, they are like almost like intrinsically attracted to the conversation. You know, they want to learn, they want to know more, and. I find it really interesting that they're drawn so that we're naturally drawn to this sort of almost mysterious knowledge. I don't know, almost sort of things we don't talk about, but related to connected to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a, in an institutional setting, 
like I said, you have to do a lot of dates and times and places. You're sort of educating, well, here are, here's the roll call of history. But I think that there should be room for, uh, I don't know if the, the word mystical learning is is right, but, you know, a kind of learning that goes deeper than just the dates and names and places of events, you know? Yeah. Well, ab- so absolutely. We- I mean, and I've always said there's a mystical comprehension to things and a literal comprehension to things. And I can agree with you on that. Now, we're in the beautiful country where, you know, freedom of, of religion, where you can practice, because a lot of these things in order to. And th- I talked about this with, a, with on another podcast where there's this sort of magnetism to these topics. Like for me, it's the occult and learning about the esoteric because anybody can can look into the exoteric. But when looking within right, that hidden stuff, that's the stuff that I really like to learn about, because that's what interests me. When somebody's talking about, you know, the mysteries of the universe and the Eleusinian mysteries schools and all this stuff that they were talking about back then, I'm very drawn to that. And like my, what was it, Gabe, the other day? My soul card was the Hierophant or some shit. Yeah, buddy. Yep. <laughs> the man of mysteries, which I don't really believe in astrology all that much, but then I'll turn around and tell you that I believe in magic, which is kind of like a paradox. Because when right. you look at all these grimoires and all these different... Uh, books on magic it's uh, heavily heavily influenced by the planetary alignments and where you know where this is compared to that and i forgot which story it was because again correct me if i'm wrong but it was was artemis and was it not odin orion were they the ones that that he was about to marry her but then orion was killed and this is why we have the orion's belt constellation yes that's right so which goddess slayed the serpent? Because I could have swore it was one of the serpents was was slayed and then it became Ursa Major, I, I think was the Ursa story. Ursa Major is a bear, right? That's a, that's a bear. The Ursa. Big Dipper and Little Dipper, yeah. Right, yes. Gabe? Yep. Am I correct? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of like a giant uh, or a cyclops. Because giants used cyclops to Cyclops have... made the bow for Artemis. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then mm-hmm. giants used to be half man, half snake or half creature they used to have tentacle for feet really uh, mythology yeah that's how giants used to be represented and artemis is part of the war of the olympians against the giants so there's a few of those being slayed um but as far as like a full-on serpent i i actually cannot think of any goddess that has ever slayed a serpent because the serpent and the goddess are usually one yeah the divine feminine because they don't need another name for artemis was the one that uh, well, I forgot the name because you said in one of your lectures where she's able to because serpents because again lizard people their whole thing is they can procreate without a partner and I uh, believe parthenogenesis yeah, yeah that was another name mm-hmm. for Artemis where she could yeah didn't need yeah. a partner that's a, that, that's a very important part that's a virgin birth exactly that's right that's right something to think about something and, to think about and Mary you know? couldn't find anywhere to give birth again how her mother Leto's couldn't find anywhere to give birth so she That's was right. you know what i mean so again yeah. there's a there's a there's a an artemis for the zoroastrians which we know this is where a lot of the christians got their symbolism where the uh you know that religion is one of the oldest ones that there is you mm-hmm. see the parallels again this is why i say we're onto something we just have the puzzle kind of mixed up and the pieces are on the wrong area but absolutely and that's why i wanted to talk about this to prep it for the next episode we're going to do on the serpents because this divine feminine where it doesn't need 
uh, a partner to procreate that's that's a serpent uh, aspect yeah. and that's yeah. what i love and, about it and it kind of it kind of like triggers the most primordial masculine fear of all time that you're not needed bro they don't need you son yeah. yes and you know i talk a lot about this because a lot of my podcasts are sort of very feminist in nature but in the old days when the the men or the chiefs or whatever were consorts to the goddesses this wasn't like you were lesser than. I feel like a lot of people, when you say, oh, goddesses ruled or goddesses did, somehow they feel like, oh, well, what did men do? Men did everything too. Like there's, you don't lose value. I guess because we're so in, patri- in, part, in patriarchy, we're in such a hierarchy. So if I'm here, you're below me. Where in ancient cultures, especially around the divine feminine, it was circular, right? So there, it's not a pyramidal sort of, hierarchy it's a circular way of doing everything and so then men don't lose any respect because the goddesses are or the older women or whatever are the chiefs of their tribes there's they're still hunting they're still helping they're still building they're still protecting whatever they were doing you don't so of course there were men in goddess cultures and goddess worship of course there were and they participated in the rituals and so i always feel a little bit like we don't have to have only one way of thinking this very hierarchical model where it's like, I'm up and you're down. If I'm up, you're down. Mm-hmm. We could collaborate and like have a much more circular way of doing things that everyone is empowered. Right. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I feel a little bit bad because sometimes I'm, I push a lot of that. Cause I'm, I guess I'm trying to uncover for a lot of women where some of their fears and insecurities and sort of traditional roles come from. Yeah. Um, and often it's a little bit like, well, the patriarchy did this and the patriarchy did this, right? But in a way, like we were we were all victims of the patriarchy, right? Because we are mm-hmm. not the one percent. We're not the authority that created or benefits, you yeah. know, we're all in this together, right? So yeah. I think, so I think, I, it's I, like, I think those points are fascinating. They're super fascinating. You can, they're like pressure points. Like if if the government was a machine, a a, a, a fighting dummy you know, your sparring partner. One of its pressure points is that uh, parthogenesis. Women might be able to make babies without you. Look at y'all, you take their leg out psychologically. And that's what Ovid was doing. Take their third leg out, bro. What's that? You take their third leg out, (laughs) that tripod. Take out the third leg. Yes, ophiolatry. Have you heard that term? Uh, I have, but I'm not, I, I, yeah, I'm not that versed in it. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating subject we talk about a lot on the spiders, mm-hmm. and it has to do with uh, uh, serpent worship being a Greek metaphor for uh, phallus cults that are really into uh, using the phallus as a uh, sacrificial offering. Mm. Oh, and this wow. is where the word, like I just said the word offering, <laughs> ophiolatry, an officer. A police officer. You know, it's kind of interesting because Kybelis, for example, priests were eunuchs, and they cast themselves in but a night. When when you're a eunuch, it's just the balls, or is it the shaft balls. and balls? Yes, but in a way, you no, it's just the balls. But in a way, you sacrificed your fertility, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, because technically, you have to use the equipment for bodily functions. But in castrating yourself, you sacrificed your sort of it's not manhood because then again now we're associating manhood with this general thing. But but you sacrificed your your fertility, your sexual drive. Mm-hmm. Then you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so so a lot of early priests of goddesses and some gods were eunuchs. 
Um, And that sacrifice was seen as something that each person willingly did. I mean, it wasn't done to them. They willingly did when they devoted themselves. Yes. That's a lot of devotion right there. I don't think I could yeah. do it. They would have like a huge party. They would get drunk. They would be high. Like it's it's not an easy thing. And then they would do it themselves. Yeah. Right. That's, that's fucking well, hardcore. Yeah. Now, and that, that one thing that uh, like kind of touches on our transformers. One thing that we did a transformers decode and I brought up this, this eunuch class of Rome that uh-huh. is not strictly Roman. It definitely has other, I mean, Greek embodiments as well but the unit class constituted a like 50 percent of the political sway so it was a substantial enough population that it could sway politics that's interesting the lower class the mundane the worker class that were were not so hoity-toity so this unit class was incredibly substantial culturally yes and uh, on the public side, it does look like this virtuous thing of like, I'm above sex. I don't have the sexual uh, proclivities anymore. But psychologically, in Roman military application of this, it had a different meaning. And it wasn't so much that I'm so selfless that I don't need sex. It had a different meaning psychologically. And this is where it gets kind of weird again. You come at it from a different light. And it means that you don't value your own uh, presence here, your own value, your own life, you know, the quality things in life, you don't even value those enough. So why would you care to send men to their death? Mm-hmm. So psychologically, if you have no qualms with cutting off your own stuff, then you have no qualms with killing these guys. Cause that's a bunch, you know, that's a bunch of other people who you don't have to feed. Yeah, or whatever. Is that why, Interesting. is that where you bring in the, the first, <laughs> Is that is that where you bring in where the first ladies are actually guys? <laughs> we could if you wanted to. But is that what you're talking about? Because <laughs> dude, <laughs> it's really weird. This it's is fucked. really weird. Yeah. It has crazy implications. It has crazy implications. But I do. I love the idea of like. I believe that people who give up their lower, their lower drives, they do ascend their their. You could think of it as like other senses get heightened. As a result, and they could be considered prophets, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, he might have survived because he didn't have certain pheromonal processes And the lions probably didn't mind that he was there because he was clipped, you know, he was sold to the eunuch of the of the king were Spartans eunuchs or no, they weren't right. Spartans. No, 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 no. Spartans no, no. That's that's a very interesting point that you're bringing up, Gabe, because, you know, we talk about a lot of stuff on here and, and some of the stuff people don't want to talk about because it's kind of, uh, you know, but it's important to, to bring this up because it makes a lot of sense, you know, where they kind of hide this. And, you know, in alchemy, sperm is like a big thing, you know what I mean, for the homunculus and all this stuff. And me and Gabe have been going back and forth about the left-hand path and what they do and the right-hand path and what they do and certain places i've heard that practice where you withhold it in and you become again that golden taoist homunculus where he comes up and you become this golden little man uh through not putting out your seed or whatever and he's supposed to take over for you and 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 you bypass samsara or the ouroboros and you don't have to have this eternal life or trapped in this simulation by the demiurge but it's interesting that we're we're always even in society today was 
uh, it was funny because George Carlin says it's the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. And <laughs> one of the things is what, you know, have a family, you know, uh, acquire a bunch of debt, do all this shit, be a, be a, a worker, be in the system, be obedient. Don't question anything, you know, uh, pay your tithings or whatever it is. And it's, again, it's related to this whole thing, but these people back then, they were, you know, this is uh, Plato's Republic where it was these philosopher Kings. They were to be withheld from having riches and having all these other things in life. Cause they needed to just focus on one thing, ruling the masses. But then you can see where that could get kind of controversial too, because it's like, what mindset are you coming from? And, and who am I to tell you what to do? You know what I mean? That's, that's mm -hmm. a, you can go down a, a very deep rabbit hole with well, that. Here, I have a, I have a great way to seal that right up to the ophiolatry in this this Kybelian concept. The the word of government that every it says uh, you know mind control gubare uh, mentis in Greek it was kyber mythis, and there is kybel, there is Roman civil law, uh, kyber mythis fundamentally. Uh, linguistically is the foundation of government. So Kybel and Kybernetis and government go hand in hand. It really goes hand in hand. And it's ancient. It's huge. It's so big. It's hard to see the whole Who's picture. Lady Justice? Who is that a Greek god or Roman god? The one where she's Justice? blindfolded with the two scales or is that Egyptian? That's later. Yeah, no, that's like, that's a later Roman interpretation. Yeah, the Lady yeah. Justice. Yeah, she's not in the Greek. Well, I mean, Hecate does... Uh, does have the responsibility of justice and sometimes Athena, but the Romans uh -huh. do the whole um, uh, scales uh, and yeah. blind. Because because one of the things that the reason I brought up that serpent thing was because uh, uh, SB Sean he had sent me a uh, this voice clip and he said, "Hey, I don't know, I forgot what we were talking about." He's like, "Hey, I don't know if you know, but oh, because he was listening to a presentation I did on Pythagoras and the symbolism of numbers and, and the number three, the tripod, which is the Oracle of Delphi, where it's they're on a tripod. He said that the, okay. the, the thing that's coming from the crack underneath, which obviously we know it's, it's a volcano and the gases and all this stuff. But he said that according to one of the stories, it was Typhon or somebody that slayed the serpent and was, they put the serpent down at the bottom there and the decay of that serpent is what's bringing up the, the gases, hence why these the, the oracles are having these uh, these visions yeah. and that would be like, wait a minute. So this be as wise as a serpent. We have we have some of the Gnostic sects that they believe that the serpent in the garden was actually the again, the, the, the good guy. They worship the serpent and they, you know, in the Bible, it says be as wise as a serpent. So he was the one uh, that said, hey, eat from the tree of knowledge because he was bringing again the light bringer we have these correlations there uh with with again but lucifer comes along but lucifer is a made-up figment of the western imagination where if you really trace back the original luciferians it was because of saint lucifer you know what i mean so we have this figment that came out of nowhere you know in the book of genesis the serpent was never related to lucifer until thousands of years later after the fact so Again, uh, some people said that the serpent was Sophia trying to wake up the creation of Yadaboth. So again, back to the serpent ideology where uh, we have the idea of the divine feminine. We have Mary Magdalene and how that's, you know, how they say that was Jesus's wife and how she we can relate that to the Holy Grail as well, where they carry mm -hmm. this sacred bloodline 
and the Nazis were looking for the Holy Grail. You have a bunch of things that you can go down the rabbit hole, but I find it very interesting that it, it always goes back to the serpent. The serpent yeah. worship always goes back. The serpent at Delphi, I don't know if you if you listen to my snake goddess pod, but the serpent at Delphi is killed by Apollo. Is and, it Apollo? Yeah, Apollo. Maybe that's what up. I got wrong because I do remember it was either, if it wasn't Artemis, it was a, somebody slayed a serpent and then it was Apollo put up the serpent and the serpent is a python hence the pythia and the python was female interesting yeah so that and that plays into helios because that's the sun isn't apollo the sun god yes apollo's the sun god but helios is a minor sun god so one of the interesting things that i found when i was looking at the colossus of Rhodes was that it wasn't erected again because of us it says quote-unquote a certain oracle now, it's like, hey, you can't have Helios again or Apollo or Apollyon or whoever it is, but you can have Artemis or the divine, the, the feminine aspect, which maybe this is how you get the the Statue of Liberty, because it's not the man. They're not erecting the male version Helios. They're erecting the feminine counterpart. You know what I mean? So it's like a Kali and a Shiva. It's like, well... Uh, if you can't have one, have the other because they're following that oracle of, hey, don't erect it again because X, Y, Z might happen. But, hey, it's okay if you do the feminine counterpart to it. You know, we're not going to say anything if you do that. So I found that interesting when I was uh, coming up with that. But now it makes sense because I wanted to clear that up because I was confused. But then I had SB tell me that the that the decay of that serpent underneath was what was making the, the oracle prophesize yeah. and come up with yeah. all these visions. Yes. It's yeah. interesting that it has this this fume, this smell or a scent that has it almost it, it kind of goes back to that strangulation of like withholding almost like think of the archery as like holding back. It's almost kind of like building Parthenia from abstaining from sex. Uh, the same thing uh, with the holding of your breath and then taking that first breath and its effects being like a born again experience, having an even psychedelic implications of a potential fume yeah uh and i want to i want to tie this on to something else that is really important i think carla because i listened to your show uh and i and i just want to tie it into the fumes that you're talking about juan because ritualistically it has another parallel that goes really underappreciated and carla i think you'll dig it okay So, so i'm thinking about the, the psychological impact that Medusa isn't, she's preserving the, the language we're going to use to talk about that effect of a man when he sees the birth thing and now he never wants to have sex again and she's a monster to him. And it's burnt into his mind. He's, he's uh, turned to stone. He's cold-hearted. He doesn't want her anymore, right? Uh, uh, and uh, there is a, something very much like that at play that goes unnoticed and doesn't have enough of a language built around it, but it's intrinsic to the Medusa story. So she has value here. This is in her dominion. And that is that when women take uh, uh, birth control pills, their sense of smell changes and they go and they choose a mate and they set a life path with the mate and they decide, okay, let's make a baby as soon as possible. I'm going to get off the birth control. And they may, when they pop, a, maybe it takes them a couple of tries. Maybe there's an abortion involved that it didn't happen the first time, and that that has trauma and turns men to stone. 
And now they don't, you know what I mean? The psychological implications of the entire, uh, everything that goes around a couple trying to make a baby. Well, now she's off the birth control and she can actually smell for the first time in years. And now she knows what he smells like in real life. And now she is callous and turned to stone and not interested in him because he's not, he is not on her frequency. He's not really true to what she is seeking. And maybe she finds something somewhere else. Well, the whole time she was on birth control, that that's an alchemical, that's something that pharmacia handed us, which is uh, definitely goes to Ophiuchus, who is in the same region of the sky that Artemis is in. By the way, all that pharmacology, all of it goes to the same location where Artemis is in. Isn't he the serpent so, bearer or something like that? Serpent bearer. So that built up Parthenia of her not being able to smell genuinely. Now she's off of that pharmacia and she smells her husband for the first time. And now he's the monster. Right? And there's a very interesting uh, reversal of the same dynamic. If he sees her exposed giving birth, he doesn't want her anymore. He changes his mind and goes wandering. If she comes off the birth control and smells his genuine self, the, tr- the attraction is broken. It's not there. The spell is gone. And she can see with new eyes. And she's like, oh, my God, what am I doing with this guy? That this guy is a phenomenon. Like and, it <laughs> and it doesn't have a language. It doesn't have a narrative or a movement. There's not a group of people going like, hey, stop birth control because it's fucking up marriages. Right. And I'm here to say I think there's an economy built up in anticipation of this phenomenon. Interesting. And they do behind the scenes. They have a narrative. They have words to speak about this effect. And the fact that it has the Artemis spell casting Parthenia is a signature to this 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 goddess. And it goes to Pharmakia. P Harma P Harmakia. Sorry, but I'm done ranting. But that is a real thing. And we don't have the words to discuss what it is. But it's a spell that is on the masses. And there you can harness the uh, the effects of those natural psychological phenomenon. And people are making big money off the fact. I that- never knew that. How? Well, why am I? Why am I just hearing about that? That's the wildest thing ever. And think about the fact that the Oracle, it, they're using the fumes. Right. Those fumes, they're using scent. That's it's right. in the unseen world. And there is a lot to say about the power of smell. There is. And controlling the power of smell. There and is. so I just want to put that forward, that we are talking about the same section of the sky and the same modus operandi that goes all the way back to those temples. Very, very interesting. Like J.P. Morgan says, millionaires don't have astrologers, billionaires do. So... that I think that this is linked to some other sinister things going on, alchemical means behind the scenes. And I'm 100%, who was I talking to about how, uh, oh, modern day Ouija boards. I mean, uh, the AI is the modern day Ouija boards. When When you're recommended something on YouTube or your favorite social media, that's an AI telling you, hey, check this out. You know, and sometimes we have this, oh, I, I thought I was looking into videos about that. Oh, here's this other one. Well, here you go. Well, you're already partaking in that, whether you like it or not. So, you know, you're a cog in the system and you're, you're, you're another, just another wheel and you're just pushing that intent along. So 
I think uh, I think we can wrap it up there, and we could prep maybe say something else and prep it for the next one about the serpent. Or I think we're we're good there where the serpent is the one giving the visions to the oracles because it plays into the other episode, the serpent goddesses, oracles, and I forgot what was the last word on um, there. Yeah. Mothers, prophetess, and goddesses. I think something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. So. I, I, think I think this one great. Awesome. We have so much to talk about with serpents and women snake knowledge. Like, yeah, definitely, definitely. There's so much. We have we barely scratched the surface. Yes, and that, yeah. and, and I mean it's it's a given, especially since this is a goddess with like how many names to her. I mean, you can't even keep up in stories and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. it, it's very interesting. And Gabe, I don't know if you want to join us for the serpent talk or not with the lizard people, because I want to I want I love talking about lizard people. So I think it really plays in. But I had a lot of fun today. I learned a lot and I think we were able to weave some things in there that maybe we hadn't planned to talk about. (laughs) So hopefully we didn't weird you out too much, Carla, and you'll come back and talk to us. But I mean, my whole specialty is mystery cults, so it's all right. Yes. You know, I, I'd love to just jump in before I say goodbye to you. I want to invite yeah. you on the spiders with us sometime. Okay, sure. Uh, it's a kind of a commitment because we are we're like night owls. Yeah. I <laughs> I tell everybody to pack your homunculunch and take and take a nap before you come because we we go pretty late into the night. But we would love to uh, to share with you and dig into your work and bring some reflections that you might. You know, sure. enlighten us. I'm fascinated. On... Sure. This yes. is great because Hecate, you know, I was um, I was very into Medusa for a very long time. And then and I and then I tried to set that aside. And sure enough, Hecate comes in to the picture and now she's everywhere I see. And yeah. it's just beautiful that I'm talking to you on this very fateful day. Yeah. Yeah, it's de- definitely one why I wanted to have Gabe on because he'll he'll weave some stuff in there that I wasn't thinking about, and then I'll br- it'll bring something up in my mind, and I'll be like, all right, let's go back and forth, and I uh, had a lot of fun. Can you share with us your where people can find your book once again, Carla? Your well, social my, media. I'm just show you the cover so you can see it. My book is uh, everywhere, I think. Uh, oh, on social media. So if you find me at Artemis Expert, I have one of those link trees. And you just click on it. You could buy the book. But like Amazon, I don't know, Indigo, Barnes & Noble, blah, 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 everywhere. It's available everywhere. And the Kindle, too, is good Like because I read on Kindle as well. Like uh, I have a copy of my own book, but I like reading stuff on my phone. So, yeah. So there, And I'm thinking of doing an audio version of it, too. You should. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking of doing that. So if anybody wants to listen to it while they're driving, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carla, for coming on hey. and taking time out of your day. I really enjoyed this and hopefully Thanks, we'll see you again wonderful. very soon. Yes, yes, we will. So good to meet you all, guys. So good to meet you all. Absolutely. All right. Much love, everybody. All right. Thank you, guys.